Would you uh, turn to the letter of James, the book of James, toward the end of your Bible? We're going to be looking at chapter 3 tonight. Toby mentioned earlier about the member covenants. Uh, They're here at the platform. If you had attended a new members orientation last week, you also had a note card. So if you would take those uh, covenants, as Toby said, pray about it, uh, and then drop them in the offering basket or get them to me. And if you were at a new members orientation, if you would get them back to the offering baskets, that would be great. But really what the member covenant is about is it's a reaffirmation of the agreement that's rooted in relationship. A covenant is an agreement rooted in relationship. And really what we're after each year is a way of saying, yes, by God's help and by God's grace, I am partnering with this community for this mission. And so if you've been a member for a long time, and this is your fifth member covenant to sign, Uh, Or if this is your very first and you've just recently become a Christian, you've just recently been baptized, you've just recently been to a new member orientation, regardless of where you are in your journey with Jesus in our church, I just think it's really powerful to consider what is the next step that God may be inviting you to take. What is a gift, a talent Something that God has given you to give to others. I mean, Don just played piano. And I don't think it's going to be the last time. Sorry, brother. You just automatically signed yourself up for a lot of Saturdays. But what is it that that you said, you know what? I've been thinking about this or that, or I'd love to do this or that. And, And frankly, maybe it's just not been on my radar. It's not been on Pastor Bud's radar. It's not been on Kathy's radar, who is soon to be officially a pastor. Maybe it's just not been on our radar. So please, please, please consider what's that next step for you to partner with this community and this mission. We need help up there. Ben is flanked by Michaela and Sarah. They're, they're taking a the next step. They want to do slides. They want to buckle their seatbelt and see where the heck it is I'm going with this. And uh, we need help there. We need help in student ministry, children's ministry, preschool ministry. We need help in our community. We serve the homeless every month, multiple times a month. We're starting a neighborhood clothes closet. And I think by the time we start that in March to next March, I think every single person in this church could serve there at least once. That's my goal. That's my dream. So we need help in our community. We need help within the church, not just because we think that that's what we got to do, but we actually believe we're following Jesus together for God's kingdom in our neighborhood. We believe that we have a purpose. It's great to gather here at Saturday night, and it's good, and it's beautiful, and it's encouraging, and it's equipping, but it's not all about Saturday. It's not all about Wednesday, although these surely are vital pieces of our journey together. So that's my quick public service announcement just to encourage you again. What is that next step that God may be inviting us to take? So you with me in James 3, James chapter 3? We're been, we've been in this series in James called Live Your Faith. And tonight we're talking about wisdom and peace. Wisdom and peace. Now if you're like me, you might wonder how those two things go together. But as we're going to see tonight in James... Wisdom and peace are two sides of the same coin. And wisdom and peace, if it's from God, they work together in that God's wisdom comes to us and the result in our communities and neighborhoods and hearts and lives is peace. 
That's where James is going to lead us. Wisdom and peace, two sides of the same coin. But they're also two vital things we are called to live into today. This week, my dad and I went to a Mavericks watching party to see them uh, lose to the Oklahoma City Thunder. And so we go, and it's at this movie theater. It was this free thing. And so they have the NBA pregame, and they start to talk about politics. They're talking about Donald Trump. And then they cut to a commercial about the awards show, and then there's Meryl Streep, and, you know, some people beside us were talking about her speech that she gave about politics and Donald Trump uh, at the Golden Globes. And then I'm looking at Twitter, and because I'm a glutton for punishment and I follow a lot of news sites and different things, all I see is Trump, 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 politics, Trump, 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 politics, Trump, 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 politics. And then that night I get on our Facebook page, and I see just my feed just littered with people reacting and rehashing, and fighting, (laughs) and debating. And then I see some people saying, I can't take it anymore. And I say, I can't either. So I put Facebook down, and then I turn on the TV, because we only have the rabbit ears, so we get like three channels. So we're watching the news, and I see more Trump. And I see more politics, and I see more people arguing about it. And then the next day, uh, Kathy calls and says, hey, Have you just been having all these uh, conversations where people just feel like they're just so overwhelmed and they're just so done? I said, yes, but I've been having those since the debates in October of last year. But I see now that a week into the inauguration, you know, there's always been a tension when a new president is inaugurated. There has always been unrest and, and the people who are on the wrong or losing side as they see it of the equation versus the people who think they're on the right side and the winning end of the equation. There's always tension and unrest. But I think this year in particular, it wouldn't be a stretch for me to say that it's just exponential. It's just more. And I think part of it is just because socially we have more platforms to vent and gripe and Well, frankly, more platforms to drive more wedges. And so when we approach James chapter 3 and Kathy and I am talking and Bud and I am talking and we're looking at Facebook and all this stuff, you know, we realize, hey, we should probably address how do we live in this political climate? How do we all calm down and say, if we say that Jesus is Lord, let's live like we mean it. And then we said, but you know what? Looking at this passage that we intended to preach months ago on this night, James, with wisdom and peace, is so appropriate for our time together tonight. So I didn't have to throw it out and just totally start over and just talk about, everybody chill out and let's read this psalm or whatever. No, James has something to tell us, and it's about wisdom and peace. And how are we to live with God's wisdom as peacemakers in a divided and violent world. So let's look, if you'll read with me, beginning in verse 13, going down to verse 18, you'll see how James starts with wisdom and ends with peace. You with me there? I'm going to read the whole chapter, or excuse me, I'm going to read that whole section, and then we're going to walk back through it, and then I'm going to save the last 
chunk of my talk tonight to get really intensely practical. Because my hope is that when we leave this place, we will have some tangible expressions and invitations to live our faith. Not just tweet about it. You with me? Let's look at James, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such, quote, wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. True wisdom shows itself in good lives by good work done in humility. And it leads to peace. Do you see that with me if we circle back around to verse 13? Don't, don't put that up on the screen yet. Just look at this. I'm going to read verse 13 and look at this statement that's up here. Let them show their wisdom by their good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. True wisdom shows itself in good lives by good work done in humility that leads to peace. Because as he gets down to the end of that section, he starts with wisdom, but he says the fruit of it is peace-loving and peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Wisdom, if I can do the bullet point definition of it, is lived truth. Or maybe it's wisdom is well-lived truth. Take your pick. But here's the difference between wisdom and knowledge. Y'all ready? Here's the difference between wisdom and know-it-all-ism. Okay? Know-it-all-ism or knowledge is, I've got this certain number of facts. Let's take parenting, for example. Okay? I am the goofball who read a parenting book before I became a parent. And I just thought that if I do uh, parenting like I've done everything else in my life, I can just take a bunch of good notes, I can just read it, I can refer to it, and I can just become a good parent. And so I had all these knowledge and all these facts about being a parent, okay? And so that's knowledge. Now, we trip into know-it-allism when you meet seminary Adam, who would take notes and read books and then go argue about it and debate you about it. So knowledge can easily lead into know-it-allism because you think that the end game is just getting more and more and more and more and more and more information. Okay? That's knowledge. Wisdom is when you take these facts, like in the parenting book, and then you live them out and you realize, oh my goodness, this child will not do what I want her to do. I can say all these right things. Do y'all know that Emma is almost five years old? I've been a parent for almost five years. And even this past week, Amy and I are trying a new parenting thing out. 
And it sounded so great. And we were talking about it. And this is going to be so awesome. And we're, and we're going, and I'm talking to Nora, who's almost three last night, and she's screaming about not getting milk. And I said, Nora, you chose not to get milk when you had a bad choice by not listening and obeying. And I'm just sitting there like, I'm 30 years old and I'm confused by what I'm saying, much less this three-year-old. And I'm trying out this new stuff. So then wisdom takes all those facts, it puts it through the gridiron of real life, and it says, okay, wisdom is truth that's lived. It's truth that's experienced. It may not just be a fact, it's something that's lived out and lived well, and that's what James is after. You see, there is a sickness behind every paragraph in James's letter. James is after people to live what they believe. And so there's a sickness behind every paragraph that James is trying to address. And here's the sickness. Christians are living out of sync with what they know. We have a know-it-all-ism, but we don't have a wise life to show that truth lived out in reality. So we've been walking through this letter of James, and the symptoms of this sickness in which we're living out of sync with this life and this faith that Jesus has caused us and called us to, we see it happen like in chapter 1, when things get hard, they just say, I'm done. Or in chapter 2, you see it, the symptom of that sickness of living out of sync with Jesus. You see them being prejudiced against outsiders. You see the church community being prejudiced toward the poor. It's a symptom of the same sickness, and that is that Jesus has shown us how to live and given us the Holy Spirit to actually live it, and yet we just... Keep it up here in our heads, and we can't put it into our feet. And there are symptoms throughout the letter that James is addressing. And last week, he talked about our tongue. He talked about that how a little spark, in a, in a verse, because last week we had this hailstorm that kind of screwed up my mojo preaching. But, but I wanted to talk about how this little tongue can be inspired by hell and make hell. And the consequence of this little tongue is so disproportionate to the far-reaching and enormous impact. It's a sickness when Jesus is Lord of our life, but He's not Lord of our tongue. And so we tear people down on Facebook, on Twitter, for their political opinions or for their difference of ideas or for their difference of faith or for their difference of background. James is addressing a sickness, and it's replete throughout the whole letter. In chapter 4, he's going to say, why are you fighting and quarreling? It's the same sickness. Can we get what we know into our bodies to be lived? That's what James is after. And he says this, the reason you're sick is because you're drinking from the wrong well of wisdom. The reason you're sick is because over here is the well of all that God has shown you, all that God wants to give you, all the wisdom that is truth that is to be lived. Here's the wisdom well from God. And he says, but there's this other wisdom well, and it's over here. And you know what? If you keep drinking from this false wisdom over here, it's going to continue to make your community sick. It's going to continue to make your neighborhood sick. And so what James does is he contrasts the two different wisdoms. You still with me? 
We just read it. We're going to walk back through it again. And we're going to see the difference between the two wisdoms, God's wisdom and false wisdom. You know it by the fruit. So if you're drinking water, if you put that water in, the fruit is going to be a sick tree, a sick body. The fruit is sick. He's going to contrast the two wisdoms. And what he does first is he's going to call out, all right, who is it that's wise? And as James often does, he says, let's see it, okay? I don't care what you profess to believe, let's see it in your life. And we just talked about that, and you see that in verse 13. That if you drink from that well of God's wisdom, it manifests itself by good lives. And you know they're good lives because they're doing good works. And you know they're good works because they're done in humility. Do you see that difference? That's another key component in the difference between wisdom and know-it-allism, Right? Know-it-allism keeps forcing the issue and pushing and pushing and I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. And wisdom says, you're right, dear, I'm sorry. You with me? Now I just jumped the gun to marriage on you. Lord, help me in my parenting and married life. I just want to see if you're still awake. The key is humility. Knowing when to just back off. Knowing when to look like Jesus and consider others before yourself. That is not who's described in verse 14. You with me? But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Here's what he's saying. If you have bitter envy and selfish ambition, don't lie to yourself. You're living a lie. You're drinking from the wrong well of wisdom. The first thing he says there is bitter envy. The word envy there is zeal. Have y'all heard that word zeal? When do you hear that word most? In association with another word, maybe religious. Religious zeal. Maybe you've heard the term zealot. Have you all heard of Simon the Zealot? Simon the Zealot was hanging with Jesus. Do you all know that zealots were the Jewish terrorists of Jesus' day? So you have this term zeal. And he put the word bitter to it. And that is, if you go to the well that says something like, might makes right, and I want to bring God's kingdom through violence like these zealots of Jesus and James's day did, it leads to a fruit of violence. Because what they did was begin to forcefully and violently attack the Roman oppressors. So James is writing, and he's saying, you're at the wrong place in the wrong time in other places of his letter when he's saying, you're going out and murdering people. Stop it. And he's talking about this bitter envy. If you've got this treasure trove of bitter envy, what's going to happen is it's going to continue to boil and boil and boil, and it's going to spill out into a fruit of violence and oppression. And so what happens is when the zealots of James's day go and fight the oppressors, the oppressors fight back and crush that rebellion. And if you go to Israel today and you try to go see the Jewish temple, do y'all know what you'll see? Not the temple, one wall. Do y'all know what that's called? The Western Wall, the Wailing Wall. Because unfortunately, thousands and thousands of years 
before we go and visit the wailing wall, Jesus wailed over the city of Jerusalem and says, on his triumphal entry that we celebrate and will celebrate on Palm Sunday, he weeps and wails and says, if you had only known the ways that lead to peace, but you're drinking from the wrong well. And so what he's saying here is if your hearts are filled with bitter envy and that's what you're spewing, what's going to happen is it's a fruit that's going to lead to, if you look back at the text, it's going to lead to uh, disorder in verse 16 and every evil practice. But it ain't just bitter envy that you're harboring in your heart. He says it's selfish ambition. So this is the wisdom of our culture today that says, I need a leg up. And so he's especially probably having in mind the teachers who'd raise their hands and say, yeah, I'm the wise one. And he's saying, if you are here to invoke your power and show off what you know, you're in the wrong place because the fruit of that, as we jump back down to verse 18, will end up being disorder and every evil practice. The symptom of James's congregation he's talking to we see in the next chapter, and that is this warring and division and frustration a lot like our country and our culture today. Because they keep going to the well that says, my way and might makes right. And he says, so if this is you, if this is what you're drinking, the fruit of it is disorder and every evil practice. So in 15, he, verse 15, he's going to expose the source of such quote-unquote wisdom. He says it does not come down from heaven. But it is three things. Earthly, you see it? Unspiritual and demonic. Look at this. Earthly, opposite of heaven, where God is. Unspiritual, opposite of the Holy Spirit. That's a word that's used a lot in the New Testament that basically says there's no life there. There's no goodness there. There's no Spirit of God there, right? So you have opposite of heaven, opposite of Holy Spirit, and then that third word, demonic, is the opposite of God's way. Do y'all know that this word demonic is the only time this word appears in the New Testament? And it's done in the context of this quote-unquote wisdom that leads to, in verse 16, disorder among people. The word disorder there is tumult, so imagine a raging sea. Have y'all been in churches that look like a raging sea? And I ain't talking when everybody's worshiping and rocking and rolling. I'm talking about when you have in that section over there, people backbiting and gossiping about that section over there. And then that section over there is stewing and fuming because they got the wrong pastor in the pulpit that they don't like. And then this pastor is frustrated because the student pastor is over there doing crazy things. And then the student pastor is frustrated because his boss, the associate pastor, is trying to muscle him out and bring his own guy in. And you've just got chaos. Because they're drinking from the wrong well that says selfish ambition and zeal and violence. And so what he's doing is he's saying the source of it is demonic. It's the spirit from the earth and there's no life in it. It's this spirit that's inspired by evil and it leads to evil. And so then the impact, if the source was in verse 15, the impact is in verse 16. And that is that disorder and every evil practice. You know what tumult and disorder is? Would you ever call a raging sea peaceful? No. It is the opposite of peace. 
Several months ago, maybe it's been years now, we did a series in the book of Ephesians. And Ephesians was about life in Christ. Paul is all about you are in Christ now. And that's a powerful message because he was talking to two separate groups of people. And we've talked about them recently in the book of James. You had the Jewish Christians and you had the Greek Christians. And in Ephesians, Paul says, you know what the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is? The bond of peace between the two groups that are now one in Jesus. So just to highlight Ephesians from way back when for a divided world today, when you're looking at wisdom and you see tumult, you think that, well, there must be some selfish ambition, there must be some conceit, there must be some demonic activity trying to disrupt things, because in the church, the Holy Spirit has united us. No matter what race, what ethnicity, we are a transnational group of people called the body of Christ. And so when we get out there and we have a difference of opinion on how we are to live or think about Jesus, we got to say, but you know what? The Holy Spirit is bigger than our difference of opinion on baptism. You know what? The Holy Spirit is bigger on how you worship and how we worship. Do you know that the Holy Spirit is even bigger than how they worship in the gifts of the Holy Spirit and we don't really seem to? Do you know that the Holy Spirit is bigger and that peace that He has already brought to us needs to be lived into and fought for because we will do everything in our power to break it for Him. The Holy Spirit will not break that bond of peace, but we sure will get our scissors and try. So we've got to live into this, fight for this, and we've got to realize the source of true wisdom, and that's what he describes in verse 17. This is what we need to live into, look into, and I think right now, I would encourage you as we read verse 17 to think about that one person, that one person that you don't particularly get along with today. Just pick one. I know it's hard for some of us. Just pick one. And as we read this list and says, okay, if you're drinking from this well of God's wisdom, this is the fruit and that good life that's manifest by good works done in humility. This is what it's going to look like even in that relationship. If you're not seeing it, Ask God for the imagination and the eyes to see the bond of peace that is there that has been strained or broken. Do what I've done for the person who calls you enemy. And in Christ, we have no leg to stand on to call anyone enemy. But those who call us enemies, imagine them, imagine them in prayer on their knees right here. Praising and praying God. Praying to God. Imagine them walking down right behind you in the line for communion. Dipping the same blood in the same body. Get that into your imagination. Let God transform your imagination. And then do this. What James told us in 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. Who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you. 
If you don't have an imagination, ask God to restore it. If you don't have any wisdom for the next step forward, don't worry. Ask God for it. Because He will dip from that well and He will pour it on you till you are soaking wet. But be careful because He's also going to drive you to that person sooner rather than later. And I hope you've been prayed up and I hope you've been living and leaning into this kind of wisdom that James tells us about in verse 17. When you are gifted with this wisdom and breathing and living into this wisdom, here's what it looks like. It's first of all pure. Then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Does everybody have their person? On the count of three, everybody say it. I'm just kidding. Don't say it, because then we're going to have some tumult here. And I'll be really hurt if it's me, y'all. Let's look at these quickly. It's going to be on the screen, so you writer downers get ready, okay? The first thing he says about wisdom, as you're thinking about this person, as you're thinking about the steps that you need to take with God's wisdom, it's first of all pure. That is a way of saying it's without fault. It's without fault. I think a question for us here is, is my motive in this pure? Or am I harboring bitter envy and selfish ambition? Am I trying to get a leg up on this person? Is my intent in this relationship to try to put myself over? Well, I'm the bigger person, y'all. I'm just taking the, the high road. No, would the Lord purify our motives? Will we find no fault in our dealing with them in relationship? Amy and I say we want to live our lives in such a way with difficult people where we love and love and love, even if it costs, in such a way where they can never look back and say, yeah, but they did that. And we've got to constantly check ourselves because the temptation there is to say, well, look at all the things they did. I didn't do any of it. We have to check ourselves, don't we? We have to always come back and say, but are we doing this with a pure motive? But are we living in such a way where we can look back and say, we've tried to be as pure in heart as we can with this. The second thing he says is peace loving. It's not only celebrating, but contributing to God's shalom. This isn't on the screen, you can write it down. That word shalom is a Hebrew word that the Adam translation could say it's God's holistic harmony. Shalom is what it looks like when God's kingdom has come. So you know how I know America is not a Christian nation? Because God's shalom is not reigning and covering our nation as the waters cover the sea. I know that America is not a Christian nation because nations can't follow Jesus and turn the other cheek. So what do we do? We celebrate and contribute to God's shalom as we relate to God, as we relate to others, and as we even relate to creation. Because God's shalom is not just for us and God and us and others, it is even for this creation that He cares for. So to the degree that which we are trying to live in harmony with God and others in creation is the degree to which God's shalom and kingdom has come. It's peace-loving. Third, it is considerate. 
This is a word, think consideration, or maybe your Bible says gentle. There's a mercy in judgment. There's mercy in consideration. When I think of this, I think this way. This person who is difficult to love, this person who is, for whatever reason, attacking me, can I consider their background, their family, their perspective, can I consider their opinion that has not been born in a vacuum, but is the result of a myriad relationships and experiences that I have no part of? Third, this wisdom is submissive. It's willingness to listen, yield, and be taught. In our church, we look for leaders who are fat. Now you're awake. Faithful, available, teachable. Faithful, available, teachable. This is who we look for leaders. We don't care what degrees you have. We want fat leaders. Faithful, available, teachable. These are words for submissive. I'm willing to listen to others. Do y'all know that, have y'all noticed that in the neighborhood church at every level of leadership, every role of leadership, it's a team orientation. We have in our child care, Two coordinators. We have in our student ministry, two coordinators. We have in our worship team, two coordinators. We have in our neighborhood groups, two leaders per group. We have in our deacon team, seven deacons. We have in our elder team, two and in March, three. Because there is something to be said for that position that we are always teachable. I am always accountable to Bud, and to Kathy, and to you all. I am never above being taught. Faithful, available, teachable. It's a way of saying submissive. Am I teachable or am I always right? Fifth, it's full of good mercy and good fruit. This is loving a neighbor in need. That's that mercy component. It's impartial. Number six, it treats others fairly and equally. And seven, it's sincere. That literally means it does not play a part. So in your relationship with this person, in your relationship with this person, I need wisdom in the next step. Ask God to drink from His well and He will lead you and the end game will always be peace. The end of this passage in verse 18, read with me again, it says this, Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Peace. Rather than disorder and evil is the end game for God's wisdom. Put every movement through the filter of God's wisdom, man's wisdom, or demonic wisdom. I think that's why you have the civil rights movement of the 1960s, which was a nonviolent, peaceable movement. It was a movement of the Holy Spirit of God to bring justice to our land. I believe that it was God's wisdom filtered through Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and myriad others, and the end game was peace and reconciliation. And so here's what's powerful if you look back with me in verse 18. It's, it's a way of saying this, make peace peacefully. Do you see that? You're to sow in what? Anger and frustration and get it doneness, dadgummit. No, you sow in peace. To make peace 
peacefully. It's to be a peacemaker. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. What does a child of God look like? In the Beatitudes, it looks like a peacemaker. What is God's plan and hope for the world? It is shalom. It is peace. And so to be a child of God, to be a follower of Jesus, is to be a peacemaker. Period. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, says that he has given us the ministry of reconciliation, which means that in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself and not counting their sins against them. It's as if Jesus on the cross opened up his arms and says, now there is not one sacrifice or prayer or work or race or nation or identity or orientation that is not welcome at the foot of the cross. There is not one person who can't come in and be reconciled to God. And we are given the task to go and announce good news, which is a message of peace. We see this first in Isaiah 52.7. Y'all want to know what's at the heart of the gospel? In Isaiah, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Imagine war is over and somebody got to go tell them. So they're coming and flooding through the mountains and saying this. Who proclaim peace. Who bring good tidings. Who proclaim salvation. Who say to Zion, God's people, your God reigns. When God reigns, there is peace. And when we go in God's name, we must do so peacefully. Peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of goodness, of righteousness. Our core conviction, our Anabaptist core conviction puts it this way. Peace is at the heart of the gospel. And what he means by that is we're at peace with God and he's given us the wisdom and power to be at peace with others. And so it says as followers of Jesus in a divided and violent world, we are committed to finding nonviolent alternatives and to learning how to make peace between individuals within and among churches in society and between nations. So I want to close and answer this question, how are we called to be peacemakers in a divided and violent world? Because I know that some of you are called to be peacemakers in a divided and violent family. And for James, it's not enough to know, blessed are the peacemakers. For Jesus, it's not enough to know, blessed are the peacemakers. But it's to even in the hard places step into the violent and divided spaces and rather than be a wall, be a bridge. This is what we're called to, to be a bridge, not a wall. So, how are we called to be peacemakers in a divided and violent world? Here are some suggestions from a pastor who is serious about loving you and who is serious about calling all of us as Jesus has, to be peacemakers. It's at the heart of the gospel. And here's the thing. Peace has got to be made and fought for. Especially now in this climate. Our first suggestion. There are, brace yourself, nine. Are you all ready? I said in closing. <laughs> Sid, don't laugh too hard, brother. We, gonna, we ain't going to be at peace, man. <clears throat> 
The first suggestion is remember your pledge of allegiance as Jesus is Lord. In the New Testament, Paul says in Romans 10, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and what he meant, because on every coin in his country, it said Caesar is Lord. So what Paul meant to say that Jesus is Lord is to say Caesar is not. He has no claim on my life. He had no claim on the body of Jesus when he rolled him in the tomb and put his seal on it. God vindicated him and raised him. My first allegiance is to Jesus. He is my Lord. Period. If I could, I would issue all of us kingdom of God passports. Because it allows us to be friends and brothers with Roman Popov, the pastor in Russia. Because our passports are the same. It's kingdom. It allows us to reach out and welcome the Syrian refugees who are a part of the kingdom of God, who are fleeing these countries that are Muslim that are Muslim majority, these seven countries who are fleeing but can no longer because there's a ban on them. It's a way of saying our kingdom citizenship and passport is bigger and broader than our U.S. passport. Am I thankful to be an American? You better believe it. And I'm not trying to make a political statement about refugees, except that God cares about refugees. God cares about the foreigner and God cares about the widow. And so we need to put everything through the filter of what does it look like as a follower of Jesus in kingdom because our first allegiance is to a king and a kingdom, not a president and the flag. So we need to think seriously about what it looks like when we go and wage war in the name of Jesus because Jesus, rather than take life, gave his life because the war is so much deeper than oil and politics and you name what. And please hear me clearly, because everything I'm saying is not a political statement in the way of Democrat or Republican. It's a political statement that says God's kingdom above any other kingdom in the world, period. And I will never run from that. I will never run from that. And I will never baptize anything that we want to do in the name of a political party or the flag, because Jesus is Lord means that no other Lord has claim. And Paul is saying our citizenship is in heaven. And he's saying it and reminding a people who lived in an actually oppressive and violent political climate where they are losing their lives for their allegiance to Jesus and they still went and died and shed blood because Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And so the second reminder is that we pray for God's kingdom, not mine, and God's will, not mine, to be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a political prayer. I'm sorry. God, I want your agenda before I want Obama's agenda. God, I want your agenda before I want Hillary's agenda. I want your agenda before Trump's agenda. I want your agenda to be the agenda that wins out in our neighborhood. The third thing is be countercultural and choose hope, not fear. You are a citizen of the unshakable kingdom of God, no matter who is in office. I will go to sleep at night and not worry one bit about Trump as president because I'm a member of the unshakable kingdom of God. And let me tell you this Christianity has never needed Christian or godly leaders to thrive. Never, ever, ever has Christianity needed someone that listened to them. 
in the White House or on the throne or in Parliament or in anything you can say. Christianity is thriving in North Korea underground. It's, th- it's thrived in China underground. It's thriving anywhere you can name it. That's actually not true anywhere, but it's even thriving as the mustard seed in the most difficult places on earth. So the most countercultural thing to do is to choose hope, not fear. And the fourth thing to do is pray for President Trump and all elected officials. Where would I get this idea? 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 6. 1 Timothy 2. He says, pray for all elected officials and those at the top places of authority. And you know who he meant? That guy Caesar who said that he was Lord. Whatever you want to say that Trump has said, he ain't said that yet. But, we, but Paul was encouraging Christians to pray for them who is killing them. You want to talk about persecution in a country. Pray for President Trump that God's will and God's wisdom and his repentance. You know, I'm not going to list all the, all the things that he said, but one of the things that broke my heart that I heard him say was, I've never asked God for forgiveness. It's well documented, it's quoted. He says, I've never had to ask God for forgiveness. Man, I pray that he would ask God for forgiveness. Because that's a way of surrendering himself and submitting himself to Jesus as Lord. Because I want God's will and God's wisdom to be involved in his life and involved in those around him. Let's pray for Trump and all these elected officials. And then Paul says that we may live peaceable lives. That we may live peaceable lives. So we're to pray. That's a kingdom act. Number five, remember this. People are not their opinions. They are God's image bearers. That's what I was saying earlier. We don't know what all has gone into their lives. But we do know that God loves them with unsurpassable value and we are called to love them as ourselves. There is not one person we meet that is not neighbor. Speaking of neighbors, number six, suggestions to live as wise and peaceable. Love your geographical, familial, relational, and digital neighbors as yourself, especially the difference and those who think of you as an enemy. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have no claim to call anyone an enemy. They're a neighbor. But those who call you enemy, would you love them at cost to yourself? Seven, work toward the change you're tired of just talking about. Live your faith. Live your faith. Live your convictions. Number eight, in this political climate, we need to ask for wisdom to see who the real enemy is because everyone else is a neighbor to love. Kathy sent me this great passage in the Screwtape Letters, and it was talking about how this one demon, it's this fictional account of how this one demon, Uncle Screwtape, is writing to this young, inexperienced demon, Wormwood. Why don't you throw it up there? I'm not going to have time to look at it, but maybe you can snap a picture of it. There's two slides. Here's the first one. And he's saying, be sure that everybody, he calls the patient, be sure that these followers of Jesus are just so wrapped up in the political milieu and so wrapped up in the arguments and the debates that they don't realize that the enemy is within them. And I think within the broader world, we've just been anesthetized not to see the demonic forces at work and underpinning all these divisions that lead to disorder and evil, just as James said. And then you can write down Ephesians 6.12. He says, our enemy is not flesh and blood, 
is the evil forces at work. Ephesians 6.12. And then finally, the ninth suggestion is to speak, act, and make peace peacefully. True wisdom shows itself in good lives by good work done in humility that leads to peace. I was going to share with you another story. I had a couple pictures, but we're going to save that for another time. And rather than give you another example of a peacemaker, I would just encourage you in these next few moments as the worship team comes up to lead us and as we partake in communion to think about that relationship, to think about these suggestions and say, God, give me wisdom. Give me wisdom and grace to take a next step and to find my own expressions and my own examples to be a peacemaker. And so I'm going to pray. And guys, why don't we go ahead and start immediately singing and immediately uh, taking communion. And each week what we're going to start to do is that the pastors are going to be available on the sides for prayer. We want to pray with you for wisdom. We want to pray with you to go out and be and declare and demonstrate the good news of peace that your God reigns. So let me pray and then we'll respond. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather freely in this nation that you have gifted this people with. So we pray, Lord, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in America, in our neighborhood, in our cities, in our families, just as it would have been done in heaven. Lord, we pray for President Trump. We pray that he would ask for wisdom, that he would seek wisdom, not just from counsel around him, but from you. And that you, who promised to richly give generously to all who ask, I pray that he would ask in faith and repentance and grace, and you would lavish your wisdom on him. And you would lavish the way of Jesus before him, that he would walk in that, and that all elected officials would follow suit. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us, that we would be a blessing to others, and that where there is division and discord, we would bring peace in your name. May we start tonight in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Lord, when one of us hungers, make it our instinct to feed. When one of us is displaced, make it our instinct to share our home. When one of us is called illegal, make it our instinct to advocate for our brothers' and sisters' rights. May we find our peace in the peace of the places to which you have called us. Amen. Go in peace.